several months ago, I suppose now, probably not quite a year, I violated the number one rule of receiving medical treatment. The number one rule. You know what the number one rule of receiving medical treatment is? Don't use Google. Don't use Google, folks. You're not a doctor. You know what happens when you use Google? You know, the doctor says you have this condition. Google's going to tell you that you're going to be dead in three months. Okay, that's what Google's going to tell you. This could happen. And, and, and don't use Google. It's a bad idea. You're not a, you're not a doctor. But nonetheless, I did, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, several years ago, I uh, had a melanoma that was removed from my shoulder, and thankfully everything was fine from that. But I also, as most of you know, have a father that passed away from, from uh, melanoma. And so now I go in about every six months to the dermatologist, and they treat me like a pincushion. And I, I kid you not, it's like every time I go in for a full body skin exam, they look over all my moles and, and, and try to identify which one looks slightly suspicious or, or atypical. And then they carve it off me. And I just went in this last week and it's fresh on my mind because I got a divot in my right calf from them saying, this one might, we got to rule out atypia, we're going to carve it out off you. So I know very full well all of that. Well, one time, uh, several months ago, I went in, and they removed a mole on my toe. It was my right big toe, and I had had it for a long time, so I wasn't terribly concerned, but of course, I went to Google. What, how do you treat, you know, melanoma on the toe? Well, you don't have very much skin to remove on the toe. Tragic thing, actually, about many melanomas on the toe is, what do you think they require removal of? You know, I didn't like that very much. I didn't like that idea. I'd grown rather fond of my right big toe over the years. I didn't want to have the loss of mobility and other things. And I, I said, yikes, I, I'll try not to think about this possibility too much. Well, other, other than a little divot in my right toe and, and, um, and a nice little scar there, nothing else has come of that. And I'm very hopeful it stays that way. But it reminded me of the need for medical amputations of all kinds. I looked it up this week and found that some have estimated there are as many or more than 185,000 medical amputations necessary in the United States every year. And as many as 150,000 of those are of your lower extremities. The most common cause of that is diabetes. And someone who is diabetic and gets sores or ulcers that can cause infection, can spread, and is, if left untreated, there will need to be an amputation. You think of those who have other infections or gangrene or other conditions in war that have required the removal of an entire body part in order to save the life. In fact... That is why amputations happen, even though they're very painful and very difficult. What is the calculus? Well, if you were to ask me, Peter, would you rather keep your big toe and lose your life at melanoma, or would you rather sacrifice your big toe? I'd say, you know, I don't like losing my big toe, but I'll take losing my big toe. And if you were to be presented, you are going to die unless you remove your entire leg. 
will you remove your leg? I think every one of you would say, that sounds awful. It sounds gruesome. I don't want to do that. But if it comes to my life, I'll do it. That's because when it comes to the precious gift of life that God has given us, we can make the calculation pretty easily. There are many things that are not worth my life. Here this morning in Mark chapter 9, as we continue working through the gospel of Mark together, we come through what to my eyes might be the most sobering words that Jesus ever gave. There would probably be statements he made in the gospels that are as sobering, that are as serious as the words he gives here, but I don't know that there are any that are more sobering, more serious, more intensely necessary of our scrutiny when he says this, if your hand offend you, cut it off, amputate it. Why? It is better for you to enter into life maimed without a hand than having two hands to go into hell. The Greek word there is from Gehenna. We'll talk about that. Into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, will never be put out, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And he goes on to say, if your foot offends you, amputate it, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. You say, what on earth is he speaking of here? Friends, we're speaking here this morning not of a physical amputation that will save your physical bodily life. Jesus has in mind the kind of spiritual amputation that will be necessary to preserve, to preserve your eternal life. And he says here to us this morning, that life, that eternal life is worth sacrificing any cost. Any cost in order to avoid eternal death and lay hold on eternal life. The title of the message this morning is Life at All Costs. Life at All Costs. It would be better, Jesus says, to lose your hand, your foot, or your eye and receive eternal life than to have the opposite and receive eternal death. Now, I want to start here with these words that have been very hard for people to understand over the years, have been misapplied in very tragic ways over the years, and require significant scrutiny. When we come on this passage to try to understand what is Jesus meaning, sometimes it's best to work backwards in logic, to try to see the big picture of Jesus describing this kind of amputation, cut off any body part, any instrument of your life that could lead you to eternal destruction. It is better to sacrifice what could offend you, what could hinder you, so that you may enter into life than anything else. How do we understand what Jesus is saying here? 
I want us to look at this in three different ways, in three different respects. And it's going to start with what I'm going to call a chilling comparison. A chilling comparison. Notice the very simple comparison that Jesus is making here in verse number 43 through verse number 48. He says again and again, it is better for thee to enter into life than having two hands or two feet or two eyes to go into hell. So the comparison here is between life or in verse 47, what he calls the kingdom of God. There is life and the kingdom of God on the one hand. And on the other hand, he says, there is being cast into hell. As I said, the word Gehenna. We could say it simply like this. There is eternal life that he is talking about. And there is eternal death that he is speaking of. Now, his focus here in these verses that were read for us this morning is not on life. It's not on eternal life. He doesn't describe what eternal life is. He doesn't describe what the nature or the extent of the kingdom of God is. That's other passages. That's not his focus here. He's not focusing on heaven, the new heaven and the earth being so glorious and being so wonderful. You really want to get there. He does that other places, and Scripture certainly holds that incentive out for us. Here, he's focusing on eternal death. That is why he repeats in verse 44 and verse 46 and verse 48, he says these words, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What does he mean by that? A little strange to our modern ears. Well, notice first of all what his focus is in this comparison. It is on the reality of hell. The reality of of Gehenna, as he would use this word in the Greek. Now, we need to confront this reality of hell together because Jesus does. Now, I will tell you, friends, I don't take any pleasure in preaching on the reality of hell and the reality of eternal death because you cannot deal with the reality of hell in a manner that is flippant, in a matter that is not serious, that is not sober. Have you ever heard someone in our modern society say the words to another human being, go to hell? Have you ever wanted to look at that person and say, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what you're saying? Have you ever heard another human being say to another person, God, damn you? Have you ever wanted to stop and say to that person, friend, do you realize what you're saying by those words? It might actually be helpful sometime to wake someone up that you know who is using those words to stop them and say, hold on a minute. Do you know what you're saying? Ted, would you mind just turning down a little bit here? I'm getting a little bit of feedback that would be helpful. Do you know what you're saying? The reality is any person who would say to another human being, go to hell, really has no idea of the reality of what hell actually is. 
in our modern culture today, we, we turn from that idea of hell as being a literal, a real place. But if you take Jesus' words seriously, you can't do that. Because when Jesus so often speaks of heaven and eternal life, he contrasts that, like he does here, to speaking of hell and eternal death. And if you believe in heaven, a new heaven and a new earth as Christ is preparing for those who believe in him as a reward, then you cannot, taking Jesus' word seriously, say, but I don't believe in that hell stuff. Because Jesus treated both of them as rewards. Similarly, you cannot believe from Jesus' words in, in eternal heaven that heaven is a place in which we will live in an everlasting time with God and not believe in an eternal hell, in an everlasting hell, because Jesus holds both of them up together side by side. You can't pick and choose. In fact, he says here that hell is the place where the fire never shall be quenched. Now, I said we were going to talk about this Greek word that is used here, Gehenna, because it helps us understand the picture that is in Jesus' mind here for this place of judgment. Gehenna is actually a transliteration from a, a, in the Greek from the common tongue in Jesus' day, which was Aramaic. People who were Jewish in that day spoke Aramaic. We have seen in the book of Mark these words, these Aramaic phrases that are included that likely would have been the actual words that Jesus was speaking, this Aramaic tongue. And there was a, a word in, 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 in Aramaic which would be Gehenna. Again, translated in the Greek to Gehenna. Gehenna was referring to a specific place that Jews of this day knew. They knew where it was. They knew what it was about. Gehenna was a valley to the southeastern side of Jerusalem. It was a valley, and it is called in the Bible the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. The Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And so that became in the Aramaic Gehenom, and then in the Greek that was transliterated into Gehenna. So the Jews that were listening to Jesus speak would have said, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about a picture of this place over here, Gehenna, a picture of this eternal judgment. Now you say, what is this place? Well, if you were to go into your Old Testament, again, this is bringing in ideas that the Jews were familiar with, the Jews of Jesus' day would have known about. Have you ever read in your Old Testament a description of a place called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom? Look it up sometime. Do a, do a word search. Maybe you have a, a Bible app and you can just search words in your Bible. Look up Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. And what you'll find is this. The valley of the son of Hinnom, just outside Jerusalem, was a place where there, were, there was worship that would be done of a false god. And this god is Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. And do you know what was particular to the worship of Molech, this false god, this idol that was 
specific to the Ammonites in the Old Testament, Molech, the god of of Ammon, it was this. They sacrificed children there. In the Old Testament, it is said that certain kings of Israel made their children to pass through the fire to Molech. And you know where they did that? In the valley of Shinar. Children any doubt, you can look back anytime the word Molech is used, if you did a search on that term, God expressly prohibited his people, don't you dare worship Molech and don't you dare sacrifice your children. God is against child sacrifice. He's against the murder of innocent, infant life. Can we say that today in our political culture too? He's against it. He's against butchering babies. He is. He has always been, and he always will be. And yet in this area, in this valley of the son of Himon, of, of Himon, these, uh, Hinnom, excuse me, these pagan sacrifices would take place. Children would be butchered. In fact, there is, this word also is used in the Old Testament called tophet, tophet, T-O-P-H-E-T. And there's a, there's a suggestion by scholars that that word has a reference to drumbeats. And there's a, there's, a, there's a wonder whether those drumbeats were used in pagan sacrifices to drown out the screams of the children being slaughtered. Just imagine the horror of that. Well, in the Old Testament, God, ex- God speaks of his judgments against this kind of practice and his judgment against this valley of the son of Hinnom where this wickedness was propagated and you can see in the book of Jeremiah and other places where God says this valley is going to be called the valley of slaughter my judgment is going to be caused to be brought about on this place and then in Isaiah chapter 66 God prophesies of a day Listen to these last words of the book of Isaiah. He says, and it shall come to pass in these last days of this new heaven and earth that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, that have sinned against me. Now listen to this. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an in all flesh. Did you recognize those words? Their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. Where did we just read that? Mark 9. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 66 about God's ultimate judgment on those who have sinned against him. And he says, there, that's the picture. Gehenna, a place of burning. Some scholars have suggested that that Gehenna, this place, would have been familiar to Jews as as a garbage dump in which there was just this, this burning that was happening repeatedly just over and over and worms, maggots that were, were feeding on dead bodies that were passed out into this valley. Frankly, there's not a lot of archaeological evidence for that. But whatever it is, this picture in the Old Testament of a place of burning, a place of death, and then here in Isaiah chapter 66, a place in which there is this perpetual kind of judgment 
happen. Jesus uses that Old Testament example and said that's the place. That is the picture of eternal judgment on those as the result of their sin. I don't know much more sobering words that could be used in hell to describe the fire that will never go out, that will burn than that, can you consider those words where their worm dies not? Like, like maggots feeding on dead bodies. Jesus is not speaking literally here, I don't believe. Some have talked about, I think it's very possible, Jesus is referring to the worm of a guilty conscience. The worm of a guilty conscience that will never die. You remember in perhaps in, in Luke chapter 16, there's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man receives all his goods in this life and then he goes to Hades to await his ultimate judgment. And he is in the, 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 the heat, if you will, seeking one drop of water on his tongue while Lazarus is awaiting paradise, his eternity with God. And do you notice what God says to this rich man? He says, son, I'm sorry, Abraham says, the picture of Abraham up in paradise with Lazarus speaking down to this rich man. He says, son, remember me. Remember me. Can you imagine eternity in hell to remember the opportunity that you have to seek Jesus Christ, to accept him as the forgiveness of your sins, the torment of that worm that will not die, that memory that will come back over and over and over and over again. What a, what a fine thing. Jesus is speaking of here as a real place, as a place that we should seek to avoid at all costs. This is the chilling comparison between eternal life and eternal death. But notice secondly what he says here as being the cause of that death. Notice what he says here first in verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed with only one hand than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Now, notice here in context what he's speaking of. Go back one verse to verse number 42. He says, and whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Jesus has already been using very sobering language, very sobering words. We talked about that last week. He says, it's all about me. If you, he says, give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, you'll not lose your reward. It's about my kingdom. It's about my service. And, and by contrast, if you stand in front of, if you hinder, if you trip up, that word offend, one of these little ones, these weak, humble ones who believe in me, he said it would be better that you would be executed by this millstone being hung around your neck. Graphic words, sobering words. And now he says, I'm not talking about you offending someone else up, tripping someone else up, hindering their spiritual life. He says, now I'm talking about if you're offending yourself, if you're tripping up yourself, if you're entrapping yourself, if your hand offends you, 
trips you up, entraps you, hinders you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. You say, what, what is he talking about? Well, let's understand this for just one moment. He's talking about the kind of cancer that sin is in your life. He is talking about the, the, the truth that your sin, what trips you up, what hinders you in your spiritual life, is ultimately what sentences you to hell. That connection is simply there in your Bibles. Listen to what Revelation chapter 21 says. Verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers, that's sexually immoral people, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What does he say? Hell, the judgment of God, is the settled judgment of God on sin, on the cancer which has invaded God's world, God's creation, and continues to deform and disfigure the people who are made in the image of God. God stands in settled and eternal opposition to what disforms his creatures and disfigures them. God's anger burns against that which is destroying his world. And what is that? It is sin. You and I were not made to live in sin. We were made to bear the image and likeness of God, including his holiness, and when sin entered the world, death entered the world. Because sin always leads to death. It is the disfiguration. It is the deformity of the work of God in human life. And this is true for anyone who loves another person. You cannot genuinely love another person without hating what defigures, disfigures, and deforms them, what harms them in our lives. I cannot love my children if I stand idly by while something is coming in to harm them and I say, go ahead, no concern here, no worries. No, my love toward my children makes me stand in opposition to anything that would harm them. And in the same way, God's love toward his creation, us, his world that he has made cannot be loved unless it stands in eternal opposition to what disgraces and defigures and deforms it today. And that is why there is a place called hell. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, that was created for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus said. It was created for the devil and his angels. And it expresses forever God's repugnance against sin, the cancer that is eating away the creation of God. See, this is why those who choose sin, who embrace sin, who reject the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ, 
will be judged there. Because by choosing sin, by embracing it, they are expressing their rebellion to God, their opposition to His universe, to His creation. And their judgment will be part of God's just judgment against sin and against Satan eternally. You see, God, Jesus is inviting us here to say, do you understand what sin looks like in your life? Do you understand what sin that trips you up, that traps you, that ensnares you in your spiritual life, do you understand how I see it? awful, chilling comparison between eternal life and eternal death is saying to us, do you understand that the difference between your eternal life and your eternal death is this thing called sin, is this thing called rebellion against God? Friends, what a sobering word for Jesus to say to us, it is better, it is better to lose a hand, to lose a foot, to lose an eye and enter into eternal life than it is to be fully whole bodily and yet as a result of sin walk, march down the path that leads to eternal punishment. There's a chilling comparison that he has for us. There's the cause that he's identifying here in sin. And finally, there's the application for all of us. Notice what he says here. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Verse 45, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. Verse 47, and if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Now we have to be very clear here. This is not calling for bodily mutilation. It's not. Some people tragically have applied that. They've literally cut off body parts to try to to follow what Jesus is saying here. And they are missing what think is obvious he's not speaking of physical mutilation because friends physical mutilation does not address your sin problem you understand that if you cut off your right hand guess what hand you can still sin with your left hand if you cut off both hands guess what you'd still sin with Because what Jesus says so clearly elsewhere is what actually is that which causes sin. He said it is from your heart that your sin flows. That's where the fountain of your impurity resides. So you say, well, why is he talking about your hand and your foot and your eye if it's really about your heart? Because your hand and your foot and your eye are the instruments by which you carry out your sin. That when a lustful thought enters your mind and dwells in your heart, what part of it is going to act? What's going to be its instrument of bringing that into the world? It may be your eye and what you look on. Your eye is complicit, if you will. Your eye is an accomplice in the sin that has happened. If you steal something, that begins in your heart. It, that, that plan, that plot is, hot, is hatched in your heart. But what reaches out to actually steal? Your hand. It's an accomplice. 
bear when your feet go someplace? Are they taking it's the, your feet are taking you someplace your heart has devised to do something wrong. Your feet are an accomplice. You see what Jesus is saying. He's not saying literally, physically cut off your foot. Literally, physically cut off your hand. He's saying, you've got accomplices all over. internet browser can be an accomplice, an instrument, like your hand, your foot, or your eye. Your dating app is an accomplice. Your Uber Eats is an accomplice. What, what's the simple point I'm making? I could, we could go just on and on down the list. We all have different accomplices that are what? That are, are leading into sin. That are leading away from what we know God desires. And Jesus is saying, if, that, if you identify an accomplice, if you identify an instrument toward this cancer that is eating away at your life, be decisive now. Choose life at all costs. There's two applications, I think, here just immediately for all of us who are Christians. And this passage hit me heavy, square between the eyes this week before, before I could preach it to you. Here's one application that's utterly, utterly clear from my, my, for my heart. It's this. If there's anything holding you back from giving yourself completely to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul, cut it off. died and are eternally under judgment today because they wouldn't give up their sexual sin. They said, I would follow Jesus, but I enjoy this too much. Their resolve to leave changed their vitality forever. Friend, what sin are you holding on to this morning that says, what I want to enjoy this a little bit more before I give myself to Jesus Christ. Cut it off. Cut it off. It would be better for you to lose a hand, a foot, or an eye than to enter into the place where the worm is never satisfied. Where the worm is never, never dying by the hand of God. Secondly, what's the second application? For those of us who have accepted the cost to Jesus Christ, you say when Jesus talks about the cost to avoid hell, what's he talking about? He's talking about something that you do perfectly and easily because he paid that cost. When Jesus talks about the fire that will never be quenched, he knows of what he speaks because on the cross he suffered that price for you. What happened on Calvary? Jesus suffered when he looked at his father in the garden of Gethsemane before he went to that cross and he said, Father, if this cup may pass for me so I don't have to drink it, let it happen, but otherwise not my will but yours be done. What cup was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of God's judgment upon you 
the cup of God's judgment on sin. He has paid the cost for you. He has paid the price for you. And now in his death and resurrection, he offers it to you freely. He says, come and accept of my gift. Come and accept of my forgiveness. He says, I have paid for your sin so that you can no longer need fear and can actually live a life of victory. Friend, if you have accepted that gift today, if you have known that Jesus has paid that cost for you, the question for all of us today is how do you view sin? How do you view the sin that is still tripping you up in your life? Are you viewing it like something that needs to be chopped off at all costs? Say, I never said yield my members as instruments of redemption for the glory of God. Will you act decisively against the areas of sin that you know displease God? The areas of infection in your heart and life that you say, God, I'm not right in this area. I, I am weak in this area. I continue to stumble in this area. Whatever it is, are you willing to be drastic? See, the sobering reality, I think, for all of us is that ultimately this says something very real about our faith. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking uh, of people one day who will come to him at the day of judgment and they will say, Lord, Lord. They will profess him as being a person of respect. They, They are his, Lord, Lord. And they will tell him, Lord, look at what we did for you. We ministered in these streets. We cast out devils in your name. Maybe they'll say we were a part of a good local church. We were part of the ministry. Look at everything we did. And Jesus will say to them in that day, he said, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What will be characteristic of them will not be the words of respect they have used to Jesus. What will be characteristic to them is the domination of sin in their life. And friend, I don't want for a moment to suggest that ultimately one day your getting to heaven or going to hell will be based on you earning it. I fought hard against sin. I earned my way into heaven. Nonsense. That is not the gospel. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. You will only find forgiveness in him. I will say, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, there will be people before him one day who will profess to have known him and he will say to them, I never knew you. I did not have a relationship with you. And the characteristic of your life was a life that embraced sin to the utmost. See, for those of us who are Christians today, friends, there there are two pictures that I want to put in front of you if you would. The one picture is something I went through a while ago, a few years ago now. I, my calf was sore, and it, it, I could feel a lump in my calf. And I, I even had a memory that maybe I was playing basketball, perhaps, and someone might have beat me right in the calf, and it was bruised, and it wasn't going away. And so I, I went to the doctor. I wasn't expecting a lot, and immediately he was concerned. And he started looking at the calf and the left calf, and saying, oh, this is good, and he sent me to get an imaging. 
trained out inside my camp, but I had a new creed. It drew me as I came in. It was called the hemangioma. Any of you had a hemangioma? You know what it is? It's a tumor of blood vessels. Blood vessels are jumbled together in a, in a tumor. We, we, we don't know why it happens that way. It's a benign tumor, though. But this one was actually in the middle of my muscle, of my calf muscle. And I remember still the, the doctor telling me, he says, well, you know, it's good. It, it's benign. You don't have to take it out. He said, really, it's all up to you. It's all about pain management. If it hurts too badly, we'll come take it out. But this is what we're going to do. We cut straight into your calf muscle and then cut out where the tumor is, and you're going to lose all that calf muscle. Cut right into it. Cut it out. I remember thinking, I don't need that. I don't want to lose the functionality. I play basketball. I, I don't, I don't want to have this problem. And do you know what I hung on to? Well, he told me it's okay. It's just about pain management. You know, to this day, my calf's still regularly pretty sore. I play basketball, but I do other things, and I feel it when I do Robin. But do you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to give up my calf muscle. I don't want to cut it out. I say, I'll live with it. I remember what Brother Mitch asked the way you feel about sin. You know there's no sin in the world. You know there's only one truth. The word of God. Thoughts, lust, pride. Whatever it is, we could bring to it. And you say, it's a little sore. But you know what? I don't think it's that big a deal. I'll just live with it. See what happens. That's not the way Jesus talked about sin. It's not the way he talks about the things you want to do. No, the way he talks about it. This is what happens when I go to my dermatology appointments and that dermatologist looks and says, this looks a little atypical. You know what? Let's check it out. Let's take care of it. Let's deal with it. Because ultimately what Jesus says is, this is a true life. Jesus urges us to do. We do something offensive to him. We do something crooked to us. If you say something you think you speak of impurity in your life, my question, my challenge to you is, cut it out. It's a true life. 